Here we are, Jess. This is hallowed ground. The something who bunker. Yes, yes, very impressive. And now perhaps you'll explain what all this is about. Oh, patience, my dear sir, a little longer. Patience? I'm in the something who bunker. You behave as if we're attending a BFI screening. Let me explain. Are we attending a BFI screening? I have always been fascinated by the concept of podcasting. So that's a no. Giles here is an expert in certain technical matters. Everything you see about you here was constructed by us too. And some other chap, but he's not here tonight. To try and find a way of topping the Apple podcast charts? Yes. But the algorithm does not yield easily to our understanding. Oh, this is Apple we're talking about. Now, this is my theory. A mirror turns things back to front, does it not? You British have a strange way of putting things, but I think so. So, you may be standing at the bottom of the charts and yet appear to be right at the top. Rich and I first attempted to refine the chart image in the mirror and then to project it. In here, Jess, are 144 separate mirrors. Ooh, reflections. Shiny. And each is of polished metal. Each is subjected to electric charges. Like repels like in electricity, Jess. And so next, Giles and I attempted to repel the image in the mirrors wherever we directed. Ow! What's this I'm standing up? Is this a piece of Lego? Oh, that was the last experiment. Everything else had failed, so they asked me to join in. If only we could have known the powers we were going to unleash. Your attempts to top the chart thus far have always been defeated by other podcasters. No matter what we do, other shows chart above us. Perhaps because they have some key factor. Possibly. That is absent in something who? Possibly. Perhaps if we found out what it is, we could transplant it into our own podcast. But if you do do that, allied with your own unique format, you'd be invincible. So now we have turned to you, Jess. No. No, you can't make me do it. You, you can't expect me to reveal the secret of the Dudley Simpson Factor. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, the basis for the sketch, to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 91, where this time we're looking at two stories which pose the question of what it means to be a Dalek. We'll look at Second Doctor Story, Evil of the Daleks, from Season 4, and after that we'll examine 10th Doctor outing, Daleks in Manhattan and Evolution of the Daleks, from Series 3. And I've got a great lineup with me to decide whether these stories open the Daleks' casings to reveal a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, or just an empty void. Starting with science and astronomy writer, and something whose own Doctor Science, Giles! Hello, I think I'm going to have to uh, hand back in my... BSC and MSC after that, after that, after that sketch. <laughs> I uh, I hope you've recovered over the last month. Last time we we, we came across you, you were COVID ridden. 
Ah, yes, indeed, yeah. No, it wasn't uh, wasn't too bad, luckily, on this occasion. Yeah. Fighting fit. Excellent. As good as it gets. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and we liked him so much last time, so he's back again. So it's our very own Fraser Hines. Here's Rick. Well, good, e- <laughs> good evening, everybody. I appear to be stuck in the Something Who bunker. <laughs> so Help! Help! <laughs> for anyone who missed our last pair of episodes Rick posts on social media as Brick Pandorica and makes fantastic Lego models of Doctor Who scenes and you left our listeners on a cliffhanger last time so how did your exhibition go of the, of the Lego models? Yeah, went to the Cold Valley Brick Show no less and showed off uh, some of my Lego models to the general public and it was brilliant brilliant to see kids who uh, have a real big knowledge of Doctor Who, not just the recent episodes, but could recognise models from the 60s and 70s and lovely to pick adults who were doing their best to pretend they didn't know what they were looking at (laughs) amongst the Doctor Who models. So I'm going to do it again. I'm going to the York race course in uh, the middle weekend in April to do the same again. Excellent. You heard it here first. (laughs) Fantastic. And finally, and this has been a long time in the making... Our guest on this episode is the extraordinary, exuberant jazz pianist, convention enlivener, and sometime BFI attendee. It's Jess Jerkovic. Hello there, from the other side of the pond. Yeah, it's nice to have something of an international flavour. We have been accused occasionally as of being four posh Guardian readers who, who sort of talk over earnestly about Doctor Who. So, so anyway, I mean, we've, we've got somebody who doesn't sound posh anyway. That's good. Thank you so much. I think. Yeah, actually, I don't <laughs> sound posh, and, and I don't think any of us really do. But anyway, there we go. So, hello, Jess. Welcome to Something Who. Thank you. You're recently back from, from uh, Gallifrey One in, in Los Angeles. So, how, how was it? Brilliant. It's my third time there in a row, I guess I should say, and... It's now a sort of addiction. I probably have to go every year because I always have such a good time seeing, you know, old friends and new and such a wonderful mix of guests, splendid guests this year. And for the first time, I actually hosted a panel interviewing four composers, including two Doctor Who composers, about their work for film and television. I got to interview uh, Sega Nakanola and Dominic Glenn. as well as two L.A. composers, L.A.-based composers, David Raiklin and George Shaw. It was a fascinating chat, and it was wonderful. It was such an honor to just sit back and listen to them talk. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I I love it when you've got great guests and you, you, you all you have to do is sort of get out of the way, really, or, or throw throw a grenade in and then step back and let them get on with the with the talk. I'm very I'm very glad to say that that's kind of what <laughs> happened. But I did have to do a lot of listening to a lot of music in preparation for all of course. that but i think it was worth it yeah fantastic well we're really pleased to have you on uh, as i say we we we've been talking about it for a wee while now and it's uh, it's great to to finally do it well i'm glad to be able to do it but i am slightly sorry that i chose like possibly the longest combination of episodes <laughs> ever uh, i don't know if that's a record for this podcast but i i apologies in advance yeah yeah i mean <laughs> I, I think unless we were to do what the war games and the sort of utopia, whatever it is, in 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 series three. That's that's. Pro- I can only think that uh, that will be longer. But anyway, oh, yeah. not it, it's it's great. I mean, 
Well, we'll come we'll come in a minute. I think to the fact that that I, that I that I love Evil of the Daleks, so it's a great choice. So, let's let's start off then by talking about Evil of the Dalek, uh, written by David Whittaker and uh, directed by Derek Martinus. So, look, I, I, as as a sort of opening gambit, I'll say that I first came across Evil of the Daleks as a listing in the Radio Times 10th anniversary special in the sort of mid 70s, and and also in the making of Doctor Who. There was a, a DWM archive feature in the early 80s that intrigued me. At the time, Trout and Watling and Hines all sort of said, yeah, that was our favourite. I was fortunate then to see episode two at, at the Panopticon convention in London, just after it had been recovered in, in 1987. And, and I, I was mm-hmm. absolutely transfixed by it. I mean, that that I can't think of an episode. Maybe, maybe Enemy episode one, but Evil 2... The first time I saw that, I just thought oh, that's that's incredible. I mean, it was it was kind of looking into the past, I suppose. I listened to an audio tape in the in the early nineties, but that was a bit muffled. It came out on CD. It was a bit better. I've read the Target book. I've watched the animation, and finally for this one, I, I watched the Telesnap reconstruction from the from the DVD. I find it hard to be dispassionate about Evil, given I've been I had such a long relationship with it. I've wanted to see it for so long, and there are so many emotions about it. But anyway, I mean, let's open up the discussion, and maybe you can talk, the, the, the three of you, about sort of how you came across it. Well, for me, although I didn't see the original episode until it was released on a VHS tape called Daleks, The Early Years, yep. which I basically wore out. <laughs> but I did have the Tom Baker-narrated audio, yeah. which, of course, excluded the tricolor scenes to get out of uh, the copyright right. of the recorded music. And then the newer one came out with uh, Fraser Hines narrating. And I, I adore all of those. And, and then the recent animation has been just a, a thrill. And I'm not one of those purists who is mad about the, the various changes, although... We'll talk about some of the music. That's obviously a thing of mine. And so some editing costs some musical cues in the animation, which I was a little sad about. But it's thrilling. All of them are are thrilling. And I just really appreciate that story a lot. I I have a thing for missing episodes, I guess. And and Mm. some of those missing stories are favorites even though they might not be the greatest stories because of you know the memories that I that I first had when I got to hear them for the first time they they still bring that that thrill sure Charles well my first experience was same as Richard we must have been in the same room <laughs> Fantastic. all those years ago yeah because when it, it was when you said London because I was thinking I think they first wasn't the first recording it was first screening at Brighton that yes, year right. before, but I wasn't there for that one. But I was there in '87 at at Imperial, yeah. And I was trying to think. I was thinking it must have been a um. I was thinking it had to be a convention screening. You helped me to pin down exactly which one it was. Yeah, I've experienced it in kind of all the ways as well. I guess. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Thanks, Jess, for reminding me. It was Tom that did the did the voiceover on the audio. On the audio version, I never realised it was cut down. I guess that's the thing, unless you're familiar with the story. Mm. Haven't ever read the novel novelisation. I have to say, that's that's a gap. But I seem to have consumed it in virtually every other way since. If you're curious about that old audio cassette that Tom Bacon rated, it is on the 
Blu-ray as a uh, special feature. Oh, is it? Okay. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> right. Nice. Away on nice. disc three. Mm. Very good. I must say, before we go on, I am so envious as an American of the immediacy that you have for Doctor Who fandom and events seem like they're constantly going on where we get like two a year or three a year. I mean, I guess I could travel to a lot of different places that have American Doctor Who conventions, but it seems like there's always something going on, which I just envy a lot. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think it would make a big difference to me, but the the curation of Doctor Who material on iPlayer, as it, you know, if I thought an obsession could go up a notch, <laughs> it has with iPlayer. Turning to evil this time round, I was just watching it everywhere. Mm. Watched on train, <laughs> watched it in bed, watched it in the living room. You don't need to know the other place or watch it. <laughs> okay. Interestingly, you know the way that modern streaming services ping you onto the next episode. Mm-hmm. iPlayer took me episode one, episode two, animated, then episode two, the recovered oh, episode, right. the original episode, and then into. Because I did notice when I when I watched episode two, I watched episode one, and then I then I went and watched the I went and found the live the the real version of episode two, and then I just it took me it continued straight on. I was thinking I was going to have to find my way back, but it continued on with the animation right. of episode three. I was yeah quite fittingly I kind of had a multimedia experience of it this time. I had to uh, I was in the car for a few hours yesterday driving up and down to my mum so I did some of the middle episodes on just just um just on audio and then uh-huh. uh watch the watch the tele snaps on the old I managed to unearth the old Doctor Who photo novels website. Oh yeah. On the oh, old, yes. old on the old legacy version of the <laughs> of the Doctor Who site and then picked up again sort of from the you know for the last couple of episodes on animation. So I jumped around a bit. I had the opportunity these last holidays to show my parents the evil of the Daleks animation. They are, they are Doctor Who fans only to the extent that they will watch it when I'm home, but they do actually like it. They do actually enjoy it. It's a, it's a family thing that we end up doing. I guess my dad's into it a little more than my mom, but at the same time, it's a fun thing that we do. And I was impressed because it's a long story, but they were, they were actually quite engaged. And I thought that was a real tribute, not only to the story of itself, but the the animated production was uh, was something that absolutely held their attention, and they really enjoyed. So, credit to the show. Yeah, I mean, one good thing that that animation does is, is it, it kind of it explains some of the stuff that's very difficult to follow either on the telesnap reconstruction or the audio. Clearly, they, they they may not have got absolutely everything right, or or it might not be exactly what happened on screen. But 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 it, it provides you with with you know more visual information that that that, that uh, yeah that explains it. Yeah, but I, I don't necessarily want to dig too deeply into critiquing the animation. But I found it a very easy watch in terms of the pacing of the, yeah. the story. It wasn't for a seven parter. There wasn't a sense that I needed to watch this in chunks to mm. make it through it, which. Sometimes I do with other 60s Doctor Who. Mm. One of the critical things, and I'm sure we'll talk about Camel more broadly over the next hour, but you've literally got a mute character and audio does that character no favours at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
All I was going to say was just on Evil was I had Dalek the early years, loved episode two, but generally getting Evil of Daleks either on the audio CD or through other means never rose to the top of my pile. It just evaded me. So when the DVD came out, the animated DVD came out, it was brilliant. It was it was like picking up fresh Doctor Who, and in some respects, watching it over the last couple of weeks, it's still a fresher watch to me than Daleks in Manhattan. Mm. Evolution of the Daleks, really, and mm. you know, it was a, it, it was a great excuse to watch it again. Mm. It's funny; it's one of those stories that's had a bit of an up and down in terms of its reputation. In, and it's always been thought, it's always been well thought of, but but power suddenly came from being, like power was the one that no, you know, that everyone kind of neglected. Yeah, it was just like oh, it's it's Batman's first story; we don't know much about it. Whether it was the quality of the audio that circulated. At the time, I remember them being, them both being pretty difficult to figure yes. out. I did have a bootleg audio of Power, but Power seems to have risen in sword in reputation maybe since the nineties, and so Evil has been somewhat of an also ran. But you know they're trying to do different things. I think it's... Uh, uh, somewhere in my mind is that DWB had it as a pole topper for all of Doctor Who. Mm. in the uh, in the 90s mm. and that would have been you know with very little material available for those voting fans yeah yeah and in the most recent poll the DWM poll it holds okay amongst the second doctor stories but it, it's not quite as well regarded as it was in the past mm-hmm. yeah I mean the, the big difference for me I guess I, I, I presume the modern recordings are the are from Graham Strong but and I think the original ones were Richard Landon or something like that. But I mean, it, it was it made the huge difference that kind of uh, that that's, that that more modern generation. I mean, obviously dating from this, exactly the same time. But but the the clarity, I guess, of of the Graham Strong recordings makes it much easier to follow. I think. Mm. Yes. No, oh, it did indeed. Yeah, nineteen ninety three, thirtieth anniversary poll, best ever Doctor Who story. And it was probably about ninety two or ninety three that that. Um, cassette came out, I think. From that sounds memory. right. Yeah, and the the target book would have been around then as well because it was one of the it was a late one, later cleared Dalek books. Yeah, yes, John Peel jobs, isn't it? Yeah, mm. I, f- I felt episode one. It, it, it's it's played a bit like an Agatha Christie play or something like that. It, you know, it's it's all about the kind of clues and and you know, I mean, I mean, obviously clues that have been set for the for the Doctor, but but yeah, I mean, there were sort of Agatha Christie plays that I remember watching on telly in the 70s that played out in a similar kind of way, you know, sort of trying to piece the things together. Yes. I think this about this and about Daleks of Manhattan, in that the, the reveal of the Dalek is actually really well done, except for the fact it says Dalek in the title <laughs> yes, and it would yeah. have had pre-publicity. <laughs> That's always um, the problem. Yeah, so we, we do see it at the end of episode well, in fairness, Kennedy discovers the Dalek to uh, hmm. to his uh, bitter end. But when the Doctor has the Dalek come into the room in Maxwell's lab, there's a beautiful reaction from the second Doctor to that happening, and it's a lovely reveal into the episode hmm. if they if they played it that way. Yeah, indeed. But it, it's interesting as. As well, it's such a continuation on from the Faceless Ones. Yes. It really mm. feels like it starts mid-story. 
and it has some as a seven part it has quite defined breaks between stages of of the story so the the first one and a half episodes in contemporary london bang it switches wholesale to a hundred years earlier and the maxable residence and then midway through episode six bang it's all changed again and, and it plays out on Scarrow. And I think that helps, that pacing helps with what I was describing before, that it actually is quite an easy, continuous watch mm. because it has that defined flow within it. Yeah. Well, our recent guest, Simon Guerrier, was unable to join us for this one, but his spirit is with us because in his brilliant biography of David Whittaker, uh, he mentions a few things about this particular story. One is that there's a very good reason why it follows on directly from Faceless Ones, and that's because originally Ben and Polly were due to be to feature in episode one and only be written out in episode two. Oh. When that was removed from it, I, I guess it took away that need, but, I, but, but it had already been written, so I guess it just discontinued going with it. It's interesting yeah. to think what would have happened if Sam Briggs had stuck around as well. Yes. Well, he says, uh, Simon, that... that Essentially, the Molly character, the maid, inherits the, the, the dialogue that would have gone to Samantha Briggs. And I guess that kind of makes sense because you've got those sen- the scenes with Jamie in the middle part of the story where he's sort of getting quite, they're getting quite cosy together. And I suppose that's, mm. that's a bit like what happened in Faceless Ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You need someone to bounce off while the doctor is conniving. Or, or, or on holiday, as indeed or, he was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was. Uh, Okay, I'm glad you settled that one because I was listening to, I was listening to those episodes and thinking this this feels very much to me like something where they had, where they where they let <laughs> let Fraser Hines be the lead for, a, for for the episode and cut away to a couple of pre-filmed inserts of um, a Tradden on film observing his antics mm. and uh, okay oh well good that that answers that so Jess I mean I I felt when I was watching this that. Dudley Simpson explodes into the action straight away. I mean, the first thing that you hear uh, is is a lot of music around that, that kind of those early scenes of the aeroplane and the TARDIS being driven off. Evil of the Daleks is definitely a turning point in his writing for Doctor Who because the last few scores, he does uh, th- three scores of season four, and mm. two of them are basically organs mm-hmm. with possibly definitely in one case him just playing the organ suddenly there's this lush ensemble of flutes and clarinets and english horns and cello and bass and and percussion and then still some radiophonic oscillators for the dalek music particularly Mm. it's like the first indication of what his eventual mixing of electronica synthesizers and acoustic instruments would sound like and it's Mm. it's so brilliant in that way and yeah it it gets off to a totally groovy start with that music as they're chasing the TARDIS but it's so lush and the the documentation of the program as broadcast says that this is the Alec Furman ensemble or orchestra rather and there were eight musicians but there's more than eight instruments and as usual they had someone uh, each particular uh, musician might double on different instruments, like uh-huh. the flute would also play alto flute, the clarinet would also play bass clarinet, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And the percussionist would usually play multiple things. Yeah. And significantly, there's 
separate piano only tracks or mostly piano only, which mm. are very distinct in them. And one of the pieces, sets of pieces that I transcribed was just this piano music. There's also like a wobbling of the music. So it's been recorded, but then treated afterwards to have this kind of wobbling effect that a piano can't actually have and a little bit of oscillator. There's usually like, like a single tone uh, played at the same time as all this piano music. So it's, it's very strange. And like I say, it's kind of the first steps towards that merging of the two instruments into one orchestra, mm. which is just makes it fascinating. And I never tire of listening to, to mm. this music as well. Yeah, it had never occurred to me previously, but I thought uh, as, as the Daleks introduced that the theme around that is is not so dissimilar from the Ambassadors of Death. It's that kind of descending pattern of notes. It's not, it's, it, you know, it's it, it's not the same notes, but it's kind of there's a similar kind of pattern to it. If it I felt oh, certainly for the Dalek music, there is a cl- seemingly clear connection to the Doctor Who theme itself. Right, yes, the diddly dum, diddly dum, diddly dum. Right, right. Quite unusual still for the time to have, you know, such a direct reference. I don't know why that was, but composers just did their own thing, and the Doctor Who theme was a totally separate thing from the soundtrack. But Mm. this time, there's a much more direct connection uh, between the two things. Mm. Actually, the, the theme I was talking about, I think it's when the secret room's revealed, so maybe it's before the Dalek arrives. Maybe that's when it was. Yes. Yes, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, that one, yes. Yeah. That That's, it's got that, there's some kind of echo or, actually, I think it's the vibraphone in the background. Right. The vibraphone has that uh, ability to, it has a little rotator thing underneath, which allows the the metal sound to kind of vibrate. Uh, mm. So it's kind of a wow, 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 wow. And so yeah. you hear the clarinet dropping, but you also hear the vibraphone underneath that, and that's right. actually what's ringing on. So I don't think, I, I don't think apart from that, it's actually radiophonics but I, uh-huh. I could be wrong just going by ear but yeah stuff like that it's not quite as i would say almost mystical as the ambassadors of death yes. music sounds no. comes no. off to me and yeah, yeah. i transcribed that music as well which is just gorgeous but yeah the, it's much more creepy i would yes. say in, in that, yes it's, it's that true cue. it's funny what you say about, ref- the, about it referencing the, the actual doctor who thing because i hadn't until you said it so i thought well, of course it is because the one that I always think of from the new series that does that is the um, sound of drums. Oh, uh, certainly. With the um, with that, the and I remember try, trying to describe it because I was saying it's it's like the Doctor Who theme, but all the notes <laughs> all the notes are wrong. <laughs> and, um, hmm. The sort of boom boom kind of beats in the background. I was trying to describe it to someone, and they didn't get what it meant at all. But yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I've also heard that da 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 dum theme, specifically to Evil of the Daleks, attributed to the the famous piece by Gustav Holst, who wrote the planets. Oh, it's it's a bit bit like the start of the Mars. I think it's much. I think it's much more about Doctor Who. But Hmm. whenever you whenever you want something martial and scary, Hmm. you you bring up Mars, the bringer of war, right? uh, Yes, which. Which Sagan Nakanola basically quotes in War of the Sontarans, which I thought mm. was hilarious. But uh, I think it's more a Doctor Who thing than mm. a Mars thing. Yeah. But they are very, certainly, when it comes to the Daleks, it's understandable that you might make mm. that connection there. Yeah. Yeah. And episode one has quite a lot of contemporary music in yeah. it as well, which 
I suppose from a composer point of view, to an extent you have to to play off that in terms of your style. And, and we don't see, I don't think, in the Blu-ray, the original chosen pop songs of the time, do we? I think they've now been replaced for licensing issues. I thought it was just the Beatles that was replaced. Right. I think Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen is in the original. Right. I believe that's correct. I actually wanted to ask about that because you were talking about the bootleg recordings. Has anybody heard that scene with the Beatles actually going on, the original? I've never heard it. Good question. Mm. I might have done, but I can't really remember. Like I said, in the Tom Baker recording, they simply excised the scene. Right. Rather than, you know, now, of course, the brilliant Mark Ayers just strips off the music and puts on something else, and I can't believe that's even possible <laughs> still. Which yeah. is how they put that other song, what's it called, Hold Tight, is the song that they replaced it with. Mm. With the mouthful band named Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. But there's also that song that they're playing in, in, in the shed or the hangar or whatever, yes. where, where they meet Bob mm. Hall, uh, which is this cute song called Mexican Beat. Mm by Jack Trombie. And Jack Trombie is the author of one of my favorite Monty Python's Flying Circus cues. Oh. I don't know if uh, those of us who are listening who know that there's a, a, a game show called Blackmail uh, where they show this awful black and white film of someone doing something that they would rather not be seen and, mm. and that's the purpose of the game show. And then there's a, it's used in the next episode and I, it's now my alarm clock on my phone. <laughs> I, I just love it. If you, if you ever get a chance to hear it, it's mm. called roving report number two. Anyway, off track, but that's the same composer. It obviously wrote a lot of music of that type, uh -huh. possibly for, you know, library cues or, or, mm. or, yeah. or songs yeah. of their own. But yeah, that's a, that's a composer who I've kind of grown to love in a kitschy kind of way. Mm. Get back to the plot for a bit. So the, the whole, I can't quite work out all the all the stuff that goes on. I mean, you know, it's all very enjoyable, but I can't quite work out what what uh, Waterfield's plan is. It's it seems to be the most insane, <laughs> insanely complicated plot to get to get the Doctor and Jamie to his house. Giles, so, yeah. Uh, Edward Waterfield has been occupying a massive part of my brain for about a week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm utterly fascinated by this character, mm. particularly in those early contemporary London scenes. Mm. So on the one hand, he does play it really well in terms of being somebody out of time. There's yeah. the slips of the tongue, the guineas mm. instead of pounds, the handsome instead of a, a taxi or a cab. But then he seems very comfortable in his shop. The shop mm. seems well established. So yeah. just how long has this entrapment of the Doctor been been going on? Has he been there weeks, months, years? Mm. Perry looks very settled in as his kind of yeah. second-hand person. Mm. He seems familiar with the radio. I know he... He's shutting the outside noise out of terrible London, 1966. But, you know, he, he's good with the radio. I presume it's him who has selected the Trickler Cafe as the rendezvous point for the Doctor and Jamie. Mm. Can you imagine Edward Waterfield walking <laughs> into that cafe? That, Str strutting his stuff, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. been at least two days of my thinking over the last week. Has been, What's that? What was that scene like? 
Well, I was pondering on the fact that Adam Adamant lives had started a year was was about a year before this. Right. It started. I wonder whether there's a bit of bit uh-huh. of influence of that in there. Because mm. obviously there's a somewhat similar, although yeah, Adamant obviously. I've never seen that. That's a, like a man out of time kind of thing. Yes, it? it's mm-hmm. it's the it's the prototype of it's the thing that Austin Powers is, is the loving uh-huh. homage of. Of Basically, it's, and it's what Verity Lambert did after she did Doctor Who. Right. Yeah, it's really entertaining, and a lot of it's missing, but there's some very good stuff in there. What's his name? Jack. Uh, Tim Bowers' favourite actor from um, from The Space Pirates. Jack May. Jack May, exactly, yeah. He plays yeah. the butler. He plays the um, <laughs> the dour butler. Yeah, Gerald Harper, who's a great and very charming actor, and gets paired off with, a you know, like a 60s... Gurley, who's not a million miles away from Polly, and the butler, and together they fight crimes of a fairly Avengerish nature, really. But anyway, but yes, so he gets frozen by his arch villain in in the first episode, and then and then revives in the nineteen sixties, and so that's what that's what uh, what's his name was riffing on with the idea yeah. of okay, frozen in the sixties and brought back in the present day, but. Yeah, so I do wonder whether that's a bit of an influence. And the other thing that was uh, was on at the time was um, the Foresight Saga. Yeah, was airing through the that was basically on for about six months. Uh, started in January '67, and so it would have been on at the time. It's maybe a bit too early, but I suppose they'd have known it was happening because it does have that feel, that Victorian sagary feel. Yes, he starts writing it in. December, I think. Hmm. I seem to recall. But yes, that, but yeah, obviously that's David Whittaker's wife, who's one of them leads in that. So there's a there's a direct oh, connection. Is it? Oh, right. okay. Right. Well, in that case, you definitely known it was happening. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, I wouldn't have known had it not been for the great okay. efforts of, of Mr. Garrier. Thanks, Simon. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's lovely window dressing, and Giles is great context for. Mm some of the programmes on the time. The Antique Shop, great window dressing, but ultimately it's the theft of the TARDIS Yes, is yeah. the bait, not yeah. the anachronistic yeah. Antique Shop. So they've, they've kind of simply got the Doctor and Jamie by pinching the TARDIS and driving it to a location. But I love the, as I say, I love the theatre yeah. that gets Jamie and uh, the Doctor in, into the I'm time I'm still trying show. to work out, yeah, I'm trying to work out, so hang on, just... Bob Hall, does Bob Hall deliberately act suspiciously in order to... Kind of? Yeah, he's, he gives them the name of Leatherman. Yes. And so he's... It, so, it seems like it's all an act. First to deny nothing, I'm just doing the job yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then he offers that when the doctor J- uh, threatens to go to the police. Hmm. It seems like that was basically part of the plan. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drops the matches as well. Yeah, quite. Yes, but I guess as as you're as you're saying this, Rick, I'm thinking, on the one hand, the antique shop is a brilliant ruse, you know, sort of selling items that are contemporary in in, in Victorian London to bring them bring into the to the future and selling them. But but to what end? I mean, mm, how is yeah. he going to? What's he using that money for? If because there doesn't seem to be. Well, we couldn't spend the money back in Victoria, London. It, it would be a different currency or you know mm. different notes. So, but is he buying stuff and then taking it I back? It's just not it. really very clear. 
to conclude the to conclude the threat on on the absurdly overcomplicated plot, it does slightly beg the question of why raise the question rather of um of why he didn't just uh, have the TARDIS kidnapped in a in a van that said Waterfields Antiques. <laughs> um, <laughs> cut out all the <laughs> cut out all the middlemen. <laughs> it's only just occurred to me. And again, this is something that was, I guess, I guess, a result of research renders it somewhat impossible because we know that this was basically, I believe, commissioned from Whitaker as a as a Dalek script from the outset. That when Terry Nation, I think they wanted to, did they want Terry Nation to write? I, 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 to write I, it, and then he. I believe uh, what what's what's happening here is is, is it's well known that, that he's withdrawing the rights. Yes, yeah. So, so that they know they've got one last go at it. Hmm. Terry Nation right. doesn't doesn't want to do it, but he's prepared to let Dave Whitaker do it. I think. Yeah, because he tried to sell the um, he tried to sell the space security service thing yeah. to the BBC, yeah. and then when they didn't, they didn't buy it. He said, "Right, well, I'm taking the whole thing to America." And, but I remember reading a thing in, I think it was in the frame back in the, you know the. Yeah, whenever that was, late eighties or so. Yeah, but the you know, the first very glossy fanzine of the of the period, well researched, how stammers Walker, that that kind of those kind of people. But I do remember reading an essay, you know, speculating on the whole story you know, the whole story and, and what Waterfield is up to is so weird in the context. There seem to be so many loose ends of stuff that isn't explained that that is this a case of of the Daleks have been bolted onto a Onto a pre-existing different story, hmm. where possibly you know, in a, I think the speculation they caught, you know, I think that the essay was called something like "Dalek Through the Looking Glass," and they were speculating that that Waterfield was trying to trying to get back to you know, get his wife, you know, somehow go through time and reach his dead wife, or something like that, and that was why he was doing all the antique stuff, was somehow financing financing his experiments. What, what I do know. Is that there's an earlier version of this story that exists, which involves them going back to the the cavemen, and, and oh yes. And so rather right. than you know, rather than there being the Turk, you know, mm. it, 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 Jamie's battling the cavemen, I think, or something like, or no, okay. or is it the cavemen who's get the human factor? Anyway, one way I or think another, they want the human factor from the cavemen. That's yeah. right. Yes. Oh right. It also raises the question, given that so much of this is David Whittaker being, and they always say Hartnell's the first Doctor Who fan, but I think I think this shows strong evidence that David Whittaker is possibly the first first hardcore Doctor Who fan. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you do wonder whether he'd have gone back to the tribe of gum mm. and uh, kidnapped whichever whichever one it was that survived. I can never remember. Well, he's the last one around who would remember that, I guess. Everyone else mm. has moved on yeah. by now, I suppose, from the original mm. um, team. But obviously, because when we get to Scarlet, we got all we got all the stuff that is Terry Nation would never have remembered. I don't think would never have had that cunning idea of oh, of course the Doctor can find his way into the Dalek City because because mm. <laughs> he's been there. And, uh... Well, he might have. He certainly remembered a lot of his ideas in the Pertwee. <laughs> 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 oh, there is that. <laughs> I, w- I wonder whether this this caveman idea, as well, is a hangover. Of one of the lines uh, on Scaro where the Emperor says, "Doctor, you're going to use your TARDIS to spread the Dalek factor throughout the entire history of mm. humanity. It's not yes. enough just to infect humanity; it's got to be 
from uh, from the very start to the very end. And perhaps there were there was a story at some point that had a lot of grander scale in terms of hum- humanity's history. Mm. But get, getting back to Waterfield, because I've yeah. been thinking about him a lot, he goes from this quite authoritarian Victorian gentleman in mm. contemporary 1966 yeah. to the point really starting with the, the death of Kennedy, but mm. certainly going back to 1866, where he pretty much falls apart yeah. almost instantly. And I'm, I was also left thinking, what happened to the confident Edward Waterfield in control mm. of his circumstances that, that we saw in those opening two episodes? There he's suddenly in mm. somebody else's house mm. with curiously a picture of his dead wife yeah, oh, on the sitting room of somebody yes. else's house. Uh, <laughs> and that just, speaking of plot convenience, playhouse. <laughs> yeah, he just slowly slips away. Mm. Although he does have that scene in episode one where he's talking to the the Dalek that we don't see on screen, basically mm. yeah. of mm. "I've done everything that you've asked me. Mm. Let me let me go." You know, he's he's basically he's falling apart there. And kind of does mm. or is that an episode two? Oh, anyway well forgotten whichever episode is in it's a good challenge I guess. think it's episode <laughs> one but yeah mm. yeah I'm trying to because actually there's a shot of him getting up he's kind of slumped down along his chair and then he gets up he goes out and sees that the bell ringer has gone off and that must be episode two because obviously I can see that so mm. in my mind my but final bit yeah. of overthinking on this topic is I am wondering what happened to the shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Perry, Perry probably took it over. I mean, it would be, that would be his opportunity. He seems, yeah. like, a, he seems mm. like a go-getting kind of chap. So. Yeah. Okay, he became Acorn Antiques. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The complication of the, the plot is there are little kernels of sort of pleasure that you can follow along with it, but at the same time, it ends up being a bit too too clever if you're really being critical about it's it. not i'm not i love it you know i yeah. i love it but it was also to be purely practical a seven episode story that exactly. had to be filled yeah. out and so again it was quite logical and, and works reasonably well to have it split into those various elements mm. the the 1966 the 1866 the scarf mm. that just about mm. does it i mean for me i think maybe episodes three and four could be smashed into one episode perhaps uh-huh. Um, it's uh, there's a lot of great music, but we don't need five minutes of Jamie fighting in episode four. Yeah, it's probably terribly exciting if we ever saw it. However, <laughs> but that like this would be, as Terrence Dix might say, a cracking six-parter. Mm-hmm. And there aren't that many cracking six-parters. Uh, it's pretty good as a seven-parter, which, as I say, you know, is much in its favor. But yeah, it's always a little too clever by half for me. Yeah, but I, I share your love for the. The contemporary scenes. Oh, yes. And the yeah, sheer, I sheer would, bonkers I of the them. plot. It's, uh, no, yeah. no, no, for sure. It's mm. just, uh, it's just an easy observation. It's, well, it, it just really it presents such a great contrast because not uh, the contemporary music, the, mm. the total scene change, the change in the language and the behavior, the change in Simpsons music. Uh, mm. At that point, mm. it suddenly becomes like the piano music I describe as slightly demented Chopin you know mm-hmm. it's it's just it's <laughs> sort of contemporary almost or it would be of the it attempts to be of the period even though it's there's some wrong sinister notes in it but it's still mm-hmm. it's still kind of 
creepily beautiful. But uh, but yeah, that that contrast I think is is neatly neatly handled there. I think we're lucky to have episode two as the only representative because it's sort of got elements of the whole. I mean, the only bit it doesn't have, I guess, is Scarrow. But everything else that's going to be in the story and, and pretty much all of the characters are in that episode. So it it mm. you know it gives us a good a good view, I suppose, of yeah, the contemporary part, the the Victorian part. Nice. Well, I totally agree, and I, I don't for one minute suggest that making that animated show was easy, but having those reference points in episode two gives me as a, a viewer really good reference points for almost every location, almost every character. I think it's just mm-hmm. Kebble and, and Terrell that, that are missing for that. Mm-hmm. And even the Scarrow scenes, Richard, we've got all that test footage for the, the final battle that gives us a really good True. view of Chris Thompson's design for the final battle. Mm. Right, and the fact that the location of uh, Grimstag Manor still exists. You know, yes. Mm-hmm. They could actually go there. I think uh, I think they may have had, someone had maybe had gone there for one of the recreations because there's like live action of yes. uh, a stand-in Victoria walking through, yes. uh, etc. And so that's certainly a, a boon to those elements that needed referring and recreating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, I would like the other episodes back, please. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and I'd like them now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody of our, if any of our listeners are in the kind of Wigan area, then, then perhaps uh, they can pass that message <laughs> yeah. on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess also thinking about, about that episode two, I mean, I, I, I love the... The sort of juxtaposition of Victoria. I mean, Victoria is introduced with a very soft woodwind music. You were talking about it earlier, mm. Jess. And then you've got the harsh Dalek coming in. I mean, the Dalek voices in this are really kind of top notch. They, you know, yes. Dalek voices are, are very kind of variable across, particularly in the sixties. But mm. but these ones are the sort of ones that I imagined the Daleks always sounded like, even if they didn't. Yeah, they got the ring modulator just right there it's yeah. just that perfect amount of harsh and inhuman and not squeaky yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also a, a dalek episode where the daleks say very undalek like things mm. and the forefront of which is them chanting dizzy yes mm. in a way that vic reeves and bob Mortimer will be proud of <laughs> and and you know they they sound absolutely like you would expect Daleks at play to sound. It's again, that's one of those scenes which I, I dearly love would, to be recovered. Mm. For for certain, it's completely iconic, and the brilliant choice of casting Roy Skelton as primarily the child Daleks' voices or the humanized Daleks really sells it because mm. it just totally contrasts. Although Peter Hawkins is one of the child Daleks, right? But yeah, that I mean, that whole thing is just is just uh, amazing, and, and it's one of those moments I think that everyone would would remember seeing. It's just so out mm. of the blue and seems you know so significant to what's going to happen, and it indeed it is. Mm. Yeah, we don't get that Victoria theme again in the run of the show, do we? It's just 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 evil the Daleks, the sort of you know woodwind ensemble. Is that right? Well, may you ask. This is actually the first recurring theme right. in Doctor Who's history. Victoria 
has music that in- basically is attached to her by episode three when they're moving yeah. her through the house. And we get it a couple of other times, one in episode four and, and, and episode six. And then it recurs in each one of the season five Simpsons oh, right. stories that he does. It's in okay. the Ice Warriors and it's in Fury from the Deep. Not that much. Hmm. Like it's it's in the scene where Victoria's having to talk to Varga in the store uh, the storeroom in episode two of Ice Warriors, and then it's the very end of Fury from the Deep, and she's saying goodbye. Right. So, but but he gets it in there, and you know, right. by the time we're in Murray Goldland, there's recurring themes all the time, yeah. uh, and that that's the way that music is now created for television, uh, you know, as well as certainly film, but certainly television now as well, and that was not possible because composers didn't recur as often until Dudley Simpson started sticking around mm. and getting more than one gig in a year. So he was able to direct that kind of continuity in the show like mm. no other composer could at the time. Yeah. I really love uh, Troughton's performance in episode two. I mean, it's it, it's hard to judge in the other episodes, but certainly, you know, you've got the, the comic duo with Jamie going around the antique shop and then contrast that with much later in the episode where he, he suddenly realizes the what he's up against and 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 the sort of absolute earnest so it yeah it, it i think you can you you have some sense of what we've lost in 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 the other episodes when you when you see that mm. yeah, yeah the reaction to that mention of static electricity yes. and things yeah. yeah that whole exchange really with Terrell as well where he, he's trying to get him to drink Yes, and I think that's really well played by Troughton. I'd love to see that scene again mm. uh, on video. I, I think, though, he's helped by the script. This almost, for me, is my, my favourite sort of second Doctor way of approaching a situation where he he he's quite passive. He he, he bumbles along. With, with the the direction of travel without really doing much more than influencing here or there he kind of just goes with the flow in terms of helping Maxtable and helping the Daleks with their test of Jamie and it's only really late on where he starts to engage in this have I guessed one move ahead of the Emperor mm. to a conclusion and it's quite clever that and for for Troughton in terms of the audio, he plays that really well. So well that I can genuinely believe Jamie turning on the Doctor mm. later on and saying, ah, this is us done here. You're not playing the hero here. Where really what, what the second Doctor is doing is what I associate with the second Doctor, which is he's waiting till that last possible moment when he knows that his inter- intervention is going to count mm. and be victorious. And absolutely archetypal second doctor for me. Mm. At the same time, he is quite manipulative in a way that we don't always see, you know, to get Jamie into the gauntlet. Mm. He has to, you know, basically hint at him, don't go yes. rescue Victoria. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, and, and so that yes. part is interesting. I mean, we don't, and, and as you say, uh, we don't see that that kind of reaction to the doctor's behavior, probably not since, I don't know, the massacre or something, where it suddenly seemed like the doctor has gone too far and is too yeah. inhuman and callous. And that's that's a very interesting 
plot point and character moment there, although I, I, I don't know how exceedingly strong it is, but it, 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 it certainly ramps up the tension in that part of the story. But, but I agree with you, Jess, that this is about influencing suggestion and manipulation. It's not as we see the Doctor in other incarnations say, I'm taking charge here. You are going to listen to me. He, the second Doctor tends to play it as the follower, just mm. nudging things, patting mm. things into place until, bang, he knows what the moment is that, that, that he needs to intervene. And he plays it, in my mind, really well in this story. Mm-hmm. But yes, this is the only one where he pushes it as far as to... like. Yeah, cast doubt in the minds of the companions. Yeah, aliens. Because um, although we see him in various other things, you know, like Tomb and so on, yes, he's been manipulative, but, you know, we don't have any... He's manipulating people into doing things and so on, but it's, yeah, it's the companions, because they're, you know, they're our identification figures and they they always trust him. You know, mm. But, yeah, that's another bit that I certainly love to... Love to see the real thing. Yeah. There's a slightly kind of Middle East sort of music theme when Kemal comes on the scene. But I've written here, I, I can't quite remember it now, but I, I said the brass and woodwind could almost be a Star Trek tune as well from the 1960s. It, it, yeah, I mean, it, I mean it, it, it's a nice piece of music, but I just I, I thought it, it, it's kind of quite typical maybe of some of those sort of action stories from that era. You're, are you talking about the the fight scene music or yeah, stuff from I, I, earlier? I, 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 th- I think it is the fight scene, probably. Yes. Mm. Yeah, there's a bit of that. I, I mean, there's there's certainly that sound associated with the not. It's not the oboe. It's the English horn. It's a little bit of a deeper sound, but that kind of reedy right. instrument you can easily you know, associate with you know, say, you know, the Middle East or Turkey, where camels from. Yes, but I. I I didn't actually notice a, a direct connection there, but you could certainly see that and make that connection. Yeah, yeah, okay. Rick, you brought up uh, Arthur Terrell, and I actually find his character like a tiny bit disappointing, only in that I don't think we get enough opportunity to realize why he's been put under control and what the mm. payoff for that is. Mm. Like you only get a sense of it at the end that clearly he found out what's going on and is tortured by it. And they need to, this is my, I guess my thinking only they needed to like quiet him down and, mm. and make him a, a team player, if you will. But I, I, it's just sort of a mystery that he is controlled like that. And we get a few scenes of him having to hold his head and, and hear the yeah. throbbing obey sound. I would have liked a little, something more, perhaps even a scene where we first meet him, where he is that tortured person. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then suddenly, then suddenly he's a new man, a new calmer man. Mm-hmm. That might've been much more compelling when we kind of know why that's happening. Instead of it just being a mystery that sort of unwraps itself and then they all run away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a bit, hmm, it feels a bit contradictory. I know I was, Getting mixed messages. I mean, I guess it's it's made fairly explicit. I, ironically, after the after they've exited stage left, you know, I think the Doctor has a line with Matt Stubble about the control unit yes. or whatever that, that sort of put, you know wraps it up in in episode six or seven. But 
but it's a bit funny because you when we hear the obey sounds like a sounds like Dalek yes. Dalek voice so you think and then, and then are we meant to I don't know because are we then meant to assume it is the Daleks that have done that to him because then we've got you know Maxwell himself yes is clearly a bit of a master hypnotist. I think it is. Isn't it meant to be Maxwell's voice? I'm not sure about that. Uh, maybe. It's very I don't think so. It sounds more like the Emperor, actually, because it's got okay. an extra echo on it. Okay, maybe. That's, that's all well, that's, associated. Yeah. Okay. I, I assumed it was Dalek-y. I was um, thinking who's in whose heads. Yeah. yeah. I, I think Giles and Jesse touch on things. Who is in Terrell's mind? I've kind of led towards that's being a Dalek influence because... Mm. The whole magnetism and electrical um, yeah, right. stuff yeah, that's yeah. going on, but we do see Maxtable hypnotise the maid, yeah, at yes. some point in that. But then equally, and he apparently I kind of get a hint that Victoria, by the looks of it, at some point, yes, yes, yes. Like, yeah. that's right. I kind of think that the Daleks are in Maxtable's mind, yes, as as well in all of this. I'm not sure in, that Maxtable is entirely in control of his thoughts and his direction of travel mm. over these episodes. And perhaps that's me Although he's adding got the, things to the plot. Mm-hmm. He's got a he's got a motivation as a human, you know, mm. it's some yes. you know, this this sort of mad mad alchemy dream, but that's yes. sort of that seems to give him enough Yeah, it's it it gets a bit tangled up. The, there's there's that moment where Terrell stops Maxtable from murdering Waterfield. Yes. He's about yes. to sort of shoot him. Yeah. 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 I mean maybe being able to see the the video for ourselves. Yeah. yeah. We would see something in the portrayal, you know. It, it's one of those big like hopes Maxtable. that I would have. Mm. For sure. I always felt like Maxtable was kind of in charge of his own destiny because he'd already, as we find out, gone to the dark side and his his ambition yeah. kind of like we see with the the uh Character of uh, Diagoras in uh, in Daleks in Manhattan. Mm. Yeah, he's got an ambition yes. which the Daleks will take advantage of. So he doesn't need control in that way, right? Uh, and so, so he's interesting in that way because he's he's also kind of more scheming. But he has like they have that conversation. He has that conversation with the Daleks. Like, I just think we're colleagues. You know, mm. we're we're peers. I'm helping you. You're helping me. And uh, and you know, mm. why should you have to force me to do anything? Yeah. And even when they do, like you know, try to you know put him down, like physically, that happens in that scene. He talks himself out of it, and he's mm. he. I must not be frightened. He says, and so I I I feel like Terrell is the wild one in that equation. The others can be controlled. Either by mm. hypnotism or like daughter Ruth, you know she's just kind of oblivious of it, mm. and you know from there drama ensues. <laughs> yeah, mm. I guess before we we move towards the Scarrow elements, yeah, just I'm going to sigh deeply about Kemmel as a characterization. Mm. Um, I mean, it we we come across it in classic Doctor Who a lot. We can excuse it as being the way television was made at the time and the, uh, the 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 social norms of the time, but it's a pretty rotten role from what we can tell through telesnaps and audio. 
you know, his very introduction as being simple, dumb, with an undeveloped mind, the stereotypical clothing, the fact that he's mute and has a just an awful end of life in terms of it was oh. a really unnecessary death. It was like Oh, it's it's horrific. We've got to that kill this really character. Yeah. Yeah. Maxwell suddenly U turns, seeks him out, kills him off. Yes. And I, some of me hopes that if we had the video, there would be something in the portrayal of Kemmel that retrieved the situation. But uh, mm. it's one of those things, uh, as a Doctor Who fan, it's just difficult to play along with. Yeah, agreed. I actually had occasion to look up the word dumb, which is what Maxwell uses. Mm. And it does specify that a definition of dumb is unable to speak. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. so we might take it as saying that he is not a smart person. Mm. In many ways, he comes across, of course, as heroic and, and yeah. noble. Unfortunately, probably a noble savage, but he does come off as mm. noble. Yeah. Not that it justifies anything, but I did find it interesting that I think Whitaker chose to use that word dumb in a very Victorian way. It would have been, and my, I think deaf mute is something that's come in much more recently as being because of the, because of the double meaning. But yeah. I think for someone of, you know, I'd certainly in my childhood, you know, deaf and dumb was the accepted yeah. usage and dumb meaning speechless and not yeah. having a, not necessarily having, I, I, I'm not arguing that, you know, certainly Kemal is that, that sort of archetypal, as you say, mm-hmm. there's a bit of noble savage thing. There's certainly Maxwell doesn't think he's the sharpest tool and the, you know, and the way that things are, things have to be acted, acted out and the way he spells out things in, apparently spells out stuff. Although we don't, again, we don't see it on, we don't yeah. have the real thing, but you know, the way he apparently has to spell things out very clearly. Yeah, he's very unfortunate, but I think in terms of the, the usage of the word dumb, it would have been in the mute sense. To your point, Richard, I think a caveman out of time would have been a more palatable... Uh, <laughs> yeah, character. perhaps so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that, that... I mean, the one thing we can say is that West Indian actor Sonny Caldinas actually mm. gets a chance to have get his face on screen. You know, he's mm. in a number of other episodes but always in a rubber suit yeah and he did seem to be when he was interviewed sort of you know moderately proud of the role mm-hmm. so you know i mean i i i would agree with you it's not it, it it's not great from a modern perspective but i but i guess it's employment as far as he's concerned five episodes worth not bad yeah yeah it's a shame we don't have any of them to to really judge it by yeah 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 i i guess i mean we we we, need, we do need our guest to, to get to Oscar. The the, the, um, the one thing I wanted to say is it, it, it's a very curious end to episode five. You know, the cliffhanger to episode five is the Daleks are behaving strangely. Mm-hmm. On on the other hand, why wouldn't you want to come back next week to see what's going to happen mm-hmm. next? Yeah, I agree. Is that I'm not sure. Has has Maxtable, I'm, I'm trying to think where Maxtable is before that because he gets the last line in the episode. Yes. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether has he just has he just snuck into the room. So is is the? I, I honestly he, can't remember whether that's... Yeah, he comes in at some point while the doctor and Jamie are talking. Yeah. To to sort of point, he shows them the Daleks in the cases where they're yeah. dormant. But then yes. he's also he comes in at some point to sort of announce that they've been 
So I'm, I'm wondering the whether factor. the I'm yes. wondering whether the cliffhanger is actually Maxwell's crept up behind them while they've been doing this, mm. rather than. Yeah, so I think that that scene, which is in Maxwell's lab, mm. starts with the Doctor showing Jamie the new Daleks. They've got the human mm. factor in them. It's where Jamie has that. You've gone too far, Doctor. That's his. That's as we're done. And it's halfway through that scene that Maxwell enters, inspects the Daleks playing away, and that leads to ultimately the the, the cliffhanger mm. and as you say Maxwell gets that final line about it's an amusing little game mm. isn't it Jamie or something to that effect yeah, yeah. Uh, but imagine in modern times I think that would have been the mm. cliffhanger that would have lit social media mm. alive yes yeah what have you done to what the Daleks, done to the Daleks? <laughs> bring them back bring them back yeah mm. <laughs> One more thought on the, the whole hypnotism and stuff like that, yeah. just briefly. I was interested because, you know, Maxwell is obviously a practitioner of all of that. It's funny, it's, it's almost funny that, because uh, considering we're going going on to review something else, half of which is called Evolution of the Daleks, given the, given the time setting and everything like this and the, and the themes that are running through this, it's almost funny that Maxwell doesn't make any references to Darwinian. Yeah, uh, you know, to Darwin and you know, evolution and mm. stuff like that. But what he does do, because he's a hypnotist, and I was thinking, of course, you know, hypnotism at that time being mesmerism, and mm-hmm. and there was I, mean, I wonder whether Whitaker's taking the idea of animal magnetism almost literally, because that was you know, magnetism was another terminology used for hypnotism and mesmerism mm. at the time. So I'm wondering whether the fact that Oh, I see. You know, tells tells magnetic, apparently magnetic powers or whatever. Mm. It's very odd. Just can't quite work out where where it's going with all of that stuff. And obviously, we get the James Clark Maxwell references yes. earlier as well. I mean, the the problem is that you know the the junction of of Whitaker and Nation always mm. results in interesting science, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it is yeah very, I mean, yeah. I mean, some. I mean, some of it is plausible and some of it is less so. But then I suppose. Yeah, we say that now. I mean, it, it, who knows what we'll be saying in a hundred years' time? But but it but it does it does feel like yeah. It's it, it, it's. Uh, I mean, there's later on. There's even that kind of weird thing where they say, oh, yes, we're going to turn human thought into steam or whatever and, and distribute it that way. It's it's very fairy tale, I suppose, rather than uh, rather than hard science. Well, it's almost like even on Scaro, there's still like a 19th century conception of science. Yes, uh, you yes. know, whether it's the Daleks' thought patterns on silver wire or yeah. or mm. this idea of a of a steam, it just seems like even if Maxwell wasn't Dalekized at that point. He'd have bought that, you know. It would have it would have made sense to his his scientific mind. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But fundamentally, the episode begins with the development of time travel in Victorian times mm. by the elaborate placement of 144 mirrors. So there's yes. all sorts of fabulous yeah. mm. pseudo scientific ideas mm. clattering around this episode, and yeah. again, it it just simply adds to its charm for me. Oh, mm. for sure. For sure. So we so we we move across to, to Scaro and and the Emperor Dalek, when we get that kind of the that beat again, the diddly dum beat, mm. as, as the Emperor mm. is introduced. 
plus Fraser Hines with his sort of typical, look at the size of that thing, Doctor. <laughs> In the cell, Troughton gets out the recorder again and plays it quite extensively. I mean, I, I mean, I know we do see the recorder again later in this era, but I, I, I can't remember him playing it, you know, uh, other than a sort of few discordant notes here and there, all that much after this point. Abominable Snowman. Right. Pretty sure mm. that's it, if I remember mm. rightly. It, yeah, it sort of fades away yeah. from there. But it's it's sort of nicely plaintive because it... it, it keeps the scene going without anything actually yeah. having to happen. It's surprisingly effective, I find. Because mm. obviously he's puzzling out a problem, as he says. Mm. And we actually get we actually get the the alchemy, the transmutation happening, mm. you know. So so you sort of think that that the Max was going to be strung along and then suddenly he's actually you know, he's actually got what he was looking for. Mm. Although he loses himself in, in Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, again. Maxtable is curious, isn't it? He he he's struggling with the idea that this alchemy secret is going to be passed to him. Mm. It's clear because we know the Daleks that he's not going to get it. Yeah, he's going to be betrayed. So it's curious that it's shown to him at all. Mm. Yes, actually, yeah. Because you know what, what's in it for the Daleks to show that they can actually. Yes, I was surprised uh, when that cropped up. I thought, oh, okay, didn't remember that. It just sort of struck me that they didn't actually needed to do it like it could have just been a device that goes mm. ping you know? <laughs> yeah yes. because by the time he he never actually gets to use it i mean the mm. animation goes so far as to turn the substance gold uh, mm. inside the the uh, container or whatever yeah but, yeah it is curious that they go that far to actually but, tempt and him. then what's what's maxwell's business model he, he's suddenly <laughs> able to turn a basic metal into gold but what's that going to be useful for? Because he also knows that by helping the Daleks obtain this factor, the Daleks become the dominant race on Earth. Mm. So who's there to buy gold rings, gold-plated cups and... It's, it's, the, under, it's the underpants notes, uh, underpants known business model, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Still underpants dot 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 profit. Right. <laughs> Question mark in the middle. Yes. <laughs> this reminded me a bit, to a much lesser extent, but of the Professor Zaroff model of scientist hmm. who's in it only for the achievement. Hmm. I have always hated that. Um, and maybe this is just my naivete, but by and large, it's not the scientists who are out to get us. Mm. But at that time, I'm sure that it may have felt that way because of some of the effects of World War II and the atomic bomb yeah. and so mm. on, that science was turned against us, was turned against humanity. I certainly Terry Nation thought that, uh, or at least it, that affected some of his thought process, I imagine. But I always, I always kind of, uh, I'm a little sad when it's just about the scientist who's gone bad because they wanted... I mean, in this case, he did actually want riches. Mm-hmm. Whereas Zaroff was just blowing up the world to blow good. up the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Right? So, so that no one would ever know afterwards that he had done it, but at least mm-hmm. he would know it as he was engulfed in flames. So I always... The bristles against me when I see scientific characters like that. Not that scientists are always, you know, angels, but there's 
science fiction at this time sometimes has an obsession with the scientist gone bad. Mm-hmm. And that has always fallen flat to me. I think Maxwell's a more compelling character and it's more a human failing than just, you know, a mustache twirling enemy. Yeah, that, that sometimes makes me a little... Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess Maxtable is sort of an industrialist, maybe a Victorian. I mean, he's, he's, he's the guy, he's the guy with the money. He's the guy, I mean, he, he, he understands enough of the science to know that it's, it's a secret that he wants, but I guess Waterfield is more of the heavy lifter in the relationship in terms of actually making the science work, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But that, yeah. but then that 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 begs the question of why he wants to shoot Waterfield at some point. Because as soon as he's done that, he's lost his science guy. Golden Goose. Mm. Mm. I think then by then though, Waterfield has entered into the disposable yeah, category yeah. because he has the cabinet mirrors. Yeah. He has the Daleks about to honour their deal and give yeah. him alchemy, which is again what. what why flippantly refer to a business model? I think he is Richard, as you say, more the industrialist mm. maybe than the, um, yeah. the the pure scientist. But it then brings me into the question, and we'll, I'm sure we'll want to reflect on it when we talk about Daleks in Manhattan. The Daleks want the Doctor for the Doctor and the TARDIS, mm. and the Doctor's ability to isolate the human factor. Yeah. But actually, they have this plan for Jamie. It's it's the Daleks who choose Jamie to be the representative of humanity to provide that human factor, mm. not Baxterball or Waterfield or Terrell or take your pick out of that that long list of characters that are already inhabiting that that house. So, are they picking Jamie because Jamie represents? all that we believe we want humanity to be as Doctor Who fans. Mm. He is the identifiable companion character, a wonderfully innocent character in many respects, pure of courage and bravery and loyalty to the Doctor. Or are they picking Jamie because this is a double bluff of the Emperor, which is it's exactly those characteristics they want to eliminate from humankind to make humankind more more Dalek. But then when we get to Daleks in Manhattan, their their choice of quote unquote human factor is very different and they have very different motives for hmm. picking Diagoras at, hmm. at that point. So so the, the, Jamie has quite a special role in this, but it's interesting that plot wise they pass on other characters that could potentially provide that hmm. that functionality. It's it's lucky they haven't chosen Ben. I think is what I'm thinking, because because you know uh, while while he's forming forming his plan, the Doctor has two male companions, uh, but mm. yes, one of them disappears just at the last minute. Yes, I mean whether it's just a yeah, I suppose it's a, it's a knock on effect of okay, they need to. Well, they do a lot of kidnapping, don't they? Because they they want the tar- they want the TARDIS, mm-hmm. and uh, we then find out they've got an ulterior motive for wanting the TARDIS. But they're holding, you know, they're holding Victoria hostage. They're holding the TARDIS hostage, both ostensibly to get other people to do what they want, really. Hmm. I don't know. I know that was one thing that I sort of thought throughout. Episode, you know, episode four is most of the most of the, the sort of challenge 
Yeah, like the getting through the house stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and then the doctor's got a run running commentary on the on Jamie showing these various, mm. yeah, you know, worthy attributes of of humanity. The thing, it's a shame that doesn't really show up. I know, I don't know with the when the Daleks get the dark, you know, get the human factor, they just go a bit silly, really. I mean, it's it's quite nice, and they they sort of you know, and the the why thing is yeah is quite good. But then you know. It doesn't really reflect what Jamie's done in the house or anything like that. We don't get to see them like showing compassion particularly for mm-hmm. for each other or any of these any of these other attributes that he's that he's shown off. Or equally, you know, it's not like Jamie has particularly questioned like you know if, if Jamie was a bit more why because he's you know obviously we see him arguing all that with um you know, arguing with the doctor quite a bit, but he doesn't really say well why are you doing this as such and that would because that could yeah, be reflected think, the other way if you wanted the Daleks to be asking why I think that that is the turning point though Giles I think you are putting your finger on it that that conversation between Jamie and the Doctor where mm. somebody who he has been unequivocally loyal to mm. up until now he suddenly thinks well what, what, why Doctor have you been behaving like this I'm not standing for this I've got better standards yeah than, than you're displaying and I'm going to challenge that so when we get to episode 7 mm. where those Daleks who have the human factor in them start saying well what, you don't have my unconditional loyalty Emperor we want to know why and we are going yeah. to resist if we do not believe that we can see the honour and the well, maybe it is there maybe it just yeah and then, Maybe you know, cue Civil War. Yeah. One thing that I think the animation does beautifully mm. is actually portray some of what you're talking about, Giles. Because the first time a black Dalek destroys a human Dalek mm. in the animation, of course, who knows what happened in the real episode seven. But in the animation, the one Dalek gets killed and the other Dalekites, like, pushes at it to see if it's still alive. Mm. I actually am really moved by that. I yeah. thought that was a beautiful touch mm. because suddenly it's like, I sympathize with these Daleks. Mm. It's incredible because this is like my friend. Mm. It was, I thought that was beautiful. I, mm. I hope something like that happens in episode seven. That's probably yeah. too much to ask, but, but I thought that was a beautiful touch to bring that point home mm. that, um, that that change had happened. Mm. Sure, most of the time we see them as kind of kids. By the mm. time you know we're, they're in episode seven, we start to get a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they still sound a little bit like kids because of Roy Skelton's portrayal, but mm. Mm. Uh, but I I think that there is a, a change that I hope is made there. At least the animation tries to bring that across. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels to me a little bit like episode seven is is chaotic. I mean, I hope that if we ever get to see it that it, it'll turn out to be better than I imagine it, you, I just get this I get this sense I suppose that there's a there's a mixture of the vis- visuals there's the model shots there's the actual the actual shots are in the in the uh, set look pretty good from the from what we can see but uh, yeah there's there's a lot that goes on in a fairly short period of time like a lot of 60s Doctor Who episode you know final episodes well I mean the 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 the, the death of Kemmel and 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 Waterfield perhaps aside, which are which are a bit unnecessary, it it, it nonetheless I, I think is it does have a nice way of finishing the story, 
but uh, yeah, I wonder how quite how it was realised. Mm. Really, the death of Kemmel and Waterfield is it serves the purpose of releasing Victoria yeah. into the care yeah, of um, the, the doctor and, uh, and doesn't add much much else really to that. Uh, in terms of the emperor itself, what a design! Yeah. Mm. Oh, yes. It's yes. easily one of the iconic pictures that you'd get in the, I'm sure it was in the Doctor Who Book of Monsters, mm. that would occasionally appear in DWM. It, it absolutely seared in your mind and that, that the kind of the, the framework, climbing frame type framework of the, the throne room as well. Just, just fantastically inventive and absolutely yeah. burns an image in your mind. So I think just again a, a wonderful job by Chris Thompson who comes across really well on the extras on the uh, on the Blu-ray. Mm. The Emperor itself, in terms of how it behaves, is again interesting to me. How the the character of the Emperor starts to fall apart. For me, the Emperor starts as someone who has absolutely outthought the Doctor. So mm. he's captured the Doctor. He she it. Captured the Doctor, got the Doctor to uh, collaborate with identifying the human factor. Doesn't actually want the human factor, so gets one over the Doctor by creating the Dalek factor. So mm. there can be ultra Daleks, absolutely pure Daleks. And then realises that the Doctor's played the Emperor Dalek because he's found a way to actually infect the Daleks with the the human factor, Q Civil War. And the Emperor Dalek falls apart magnificently, mm. blows up in a wonderful way. And when there's all the fighting in the room, comes out with the line, do not fight here. Mm. And th- that's what that's what my grandpa used to do when me and my brother were going at it <laughs> in his living room. It wasn't that he wanted us to stop fighting. He just didn't want us to be doing it there, <laughs> and so as a, a as a as a parent grandparent substitute, I thought that was a wonderful moment. Yeah, I was always curious about the actual presentation of the emperor in the story because, of course, the animation takes the trouble to make the eye move and the lights mm. flash. Mm. But I had always read, probably from like the Peter Haining books, that the emperor Dalek was immobile and. Mm didn't move at all. It was just this giant controlling brain in a ultra sized Dalek casing. And I'm, I honestly wonder what that, if it really did just sit there, hmm. maybe they would have tried to do something with it, at least flash a light. Hmm. But I, I'm curious about that because I had the impression that the animation moved beyond that idea and tried hmm. to give it a little bit more visual idea would, would, would make sense they would do in the original TV too. Well it's Derek Marson that's directing all of this so again you'd imagine he'd try and do try and do stuff because he was no slouch I mean you know when we got we got the episode of Galaxy 4 when we got Airlock back that had nice surprises that you know indeed lifted what we thought was a fairly static had always mm. assumed was a fairly static staging and I will say for Scarrow generally and speaking of Derek Martinez, the lighting of the interiors of the Dalek City mm. are beautiful and scary. The, mm. It's seemingly a rare occasion where they underlit it, yes. and it's yeah. scary. It's scary as hell for me. Mm. 
like you you see Daleks creeping out of shadows, mm. you know, mm. and and obviously the lights come up on the Emperor in this vast dark chamber mm. of him. That, that yeah. eventually, like those those things really stand out to me is that it's not a bright gleaming Dalek city; it's mm-hmm. dark and scary, and you don't know what's around the next corner. Even though, even though the lattice work walls you you can clearly see through, it's still that was a design. Obviously, they weren't like out of money or anything. I don't think, but uh, it's a clever design and hmm. really beautifully lit. I think. Yeah. So imagine a parallel universe where that's it. Terry Nation gets his Dalek American TV series off the ground, yeah. or mm. just those licensing discussions never quite see eye to eye is this a is this a good fitting finale for the daleks in 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 doctor who is it the the epic finish that that, that befits the doctor who's greatest enemy yeah i mean for me the only thing i would regret if this was the final dalek story in the original run the only thing i would regret probably is genesis missing I, I, you know it, it feels like after this, when they come back, I mean, Day of the Daleks, I love as a story, but it doesn't feel like the Daleks have a, have a big part to play in it. No, yeah, I, you know, and, and I, I, I like some of the other Dalek stories too, but this, this does feel kind of, yeah, it's, it's a big story in a way that maybe a lot of the other ones aren't. It, 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 it's played with very high stakes, and it feels like it, it achieves them by and large. Hmm. I would say, apart from maybe. Limitations of scale, you know, we're certainly spoiled in the new series for numbers of Daleks, yeah. uh, vastness of armies and uh, and fleets. I think it really is exciting and seems final. And if for no other reason that the Doctor says it's the final end, yeah. and yeah. we believe the Doctor, mm. yeah, I, I would be okay with with that i think that would be pretty exciting you know although dalek's master plan arguably has a a more epic ending Mm -hmm. i think that this is a great one just for the 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 breadth of the story that we've gone through i think is Mm -hmm. a really great payoff here yeah and it's daleks behaving as daleks they're they're cunning they yeah, you know, they've they've got a plan. It doesn't work out, but they've 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 got a a clever plan. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I like that. A cunning plan, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and I th- <laughs> I think it gets it gets a bit more. It's got that dramatic heft because it's seated in. Is I was just going back and checking. It's episode five. The Doctor has that discussion with Waterfield about the Dalek factor, and yeah. and Waterfield thinks he's talking about you know sacrificing the future of the Earth. Yes. And like wiping out, sacrifice the whole world, the history, past, present, and future, destroying an entire race. And Doc says, "Yes, I don't think you quite realise what you're saying, but yes, it may come to that. It may very well come to that." And so that sort of seeds the fact that these are the stakes mm. here. So I think, yeah, I think apart from, I guess we might look at the effects, you know, the '60s effects, you know, with, with a certain level of. John, just if it, if it was if it was there, especially if it was there to, to actually see, as well as being the last ever Dalek story, then yeah, we might we might 
have our doubts about that. But it's but I think dramatically, it's a, it's a good it's a good finish. But then again, it's it's a difficult hypothetical because if if that scenario had played out, then we'd have presumably had had a whole other Dalek universe going on. Mm. Would have come about from American telly, I suppose. Mm. So, so it wouldn't have quite been the final end. We'd, we'd still be watching it in the context of, oh, and then they went and did this other stuff. You know? Yeah, we didn't get there the Daleks and yeah Genesis and things, but yeah, uh, a c- couple of really minor points. John Bailey played Waterfields in the Sensor rights, this and then the Horns of Nymon, and I thought to myself, well, Evil of the Daleks, Horns of Nymon, it's the sublime to the ridiculous, <laughs> and then. A fascinating theory from Simon Guerrier about Maxtable and Waterfield echoing the relationship between Terry Nation and David Whittaker, and that <laughs> Nation is sort of going look, looking for gold with the Daleks or, or, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, in America, whilst Whittaker somehow got caught up in something that that he's not quite sure about. But anyway, I mean, I, I think it's I, I think it's a brilliant it's a brilliant idea from Simon. Yeah, I hope he I hope he doesn't mind that I've I've uh, I picked that up from him and talked about it here. But I I, I, I do like that. That's a very uh-huh. engaging idea. Yeah, I suppose wrapping this one up. Final thoughts on Evil of the Daleks. Oh, my final thought is I loved it. What a great what a great ride. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it just, it flowed. It was very watchable. The, the plot points that we're picking at all, almost add to rather than detract from the flow of the episode. Mm. I, I would love to get this back on video, obviously, but I think we have enough of it with Telesnaps and the animated series and the retained episode to say, yeah, and this is a really like good, fun yeah. episode, yeah. My only, my my only remaining plot hole that I've all, <laughs> I just, these are all coming from love, but the the one remaining plot hole that I <laughs> did feel like the need to, I thought, hang on, did I really hear that correctly? Is in um episode six when um in the in the cell, uh, when uh, Victoria and Camel, when the when the emergency klaxons, well yeah, when the emergency announcements start to go off, human beings detected in the city, Victoria's immediate thought is maybe it's Jamie and the Doctor. She doesn't mention her father, and she hasn't met the doctor at this point. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and I guess Jamie has probably mentioned the doctor to her, but, um... but he wasn't very happy with him at the time. She, yes, yeah, <laughs> which is a bit odd, but yeah. So, so when I think about the two great Trout and Dalek stories, I think I I believe that Power of the Daleks, in my head, I believe that that is a greater story because it's just so brilliantly plotted and it it ramps up the tension with every episode. But Mm. in my heart, you know, emotionally, I I, I find that this is the one that appeals the more. And I I kind of, you know, it's a bit like when we talked about Pyramids of Mars. I kind of know it's, there's a lot of tosh in there, but at the same time, I still still love it. Well, is that Victorian sci-fi as well? Yeah, I'm glad you went before me, Richard, because you basically took the words right out of my mouth. I I actually do feel the same way about power versus evil, but certainly now that I've we've had the opportunity to experience evil in a way we never could before, you're absolutely right. There is a charm about evil that power just doesn't have, with the exception of the very new character of Trout and his mercurial nature at that point 
but yeah, that's that's basically how I feel as well. This story has a is a little bit too convoluted, but it's charming. It's well cast. It's well acted. There's some gorgeous music in it. Man, if that was a soundtrack that existed, you know, because that's a sad fate too, not to belittle 97 missing episodes, mm. but almost no Simpsons soundtracks exist separately. Mm. It's just, a, it's a real tragedy because everybody else is, basically exists. Tristram carries, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not to keep harping on the music, but I, I care a lot about it. Uh, so, but anyway, a, a charming story and, if it thrilled my parents, that has to be a good sign. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Do you want to grab five minutes just to sort of, um, you know, get your head, thoughts together again, and then we'll go with the other one? Yes. Sure. Fine by me. Yeah. Wouldn't mind just in... making yeah, yeah. a cup of tea? Yeah. Back in a minute. Right. Cheers. <laughs> I don't I think, think so. so. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry if any of my insertions threw you off, but no, no. <laughs> no, you, you missed it, Giles. But but uh, Jess explained to us that he was going for a sort of Patrick Troughton esque performance. Yes, know, a, a but American, but American, <laughs> but American. Yeah. yeah.